Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, open up to John chapter 8. We're going to look at John 8. We're going to go uh, verse uh, 21 to 59. We just left off with the adulterous woman. And so the, this, this big uh, argument's going to break out, and they're going to go back and forth, and it's going to be really interesting. And back in, um, in verse 19, they had stated to Jesus, because we're going to start at verse 21, they had stated to Jesus, where is, where is your father? Now, the reason why they're asking, where is your father, why they're shifting gears there, is because, remember, they've been talking about the adulterous woman, but it blew up in their face and they couldn't take him down. So now they say, where is your father? Jesus doesn't bother dealing with that question. But if you think about the question, why there's, where is your father? They're really hinting about his mother. And he's going to deal with that later on because they're going to go at him later on about his mother in this whole situation here. Jesus, when, when they ask him, where is your father? What he's going to eventually do, because they're going to press the issue as he talks about his father God and they keep pressing the issue, he's finally going to tell them who their father is. And when he starts to tell them who their father is, boy, it's on at that moment. And so this whole thing is going to build up, build up, build up until finally it just blows up in the very end. And they are so steamed at him at the very end of it all. So it's a really interesting exchange of, uh, of, of verbiage as we progress. So I got four things for you if you have your outlines there. Number one, Jesus reclassifies them into the category of sinners. Jesus reclassifies them into the category of sinners. Now look at verse 21 to 24. It says this. It says, then he, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, notice I am he, he, is it, a, is he italicized? Yes, not in the original language. So he's saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, imagine if you're standing there, because don't, don't think that it's just them and Jesus in a room talking. There's a big crowd around them, okay? They're all listening to this, and these are the Pharisees that he's going back and forth with, and they're supposed to be the godly people. And so when Jesus says that you will die in your sins and reclassifies them as sinners, what do you think all the people around them are thinking at that moment? I mean, I think they're going, oh, no, Jesus didn't. Yeah, he just told them, man. He told them, you are a bunch of sinners, man. And then he adds in verse, um, in verse 24, he goes, and your only hope, think about these are the Pharisees, these are the godly guys, and your only hope for your life is that you believe in me. Are you kidding me? Because back in John 7, verse 48, when the officers came back, they said, remember, none of us believe in him. But now he's, he's telling them, unless you believe in me. Now, by way of rehearsal again, because the word believe in the gospel of John is huge. It's repeated again and again. But so we know what the idea of that word is. It does not mean that, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. It is not even close to what it means. It, it's the idea of like you're joined in a marriage. You've jumped all the way in. It's total commitment. And I like to say it like this. 
in the Wizard of Oz, you jump on the yellow brick road, you stay on the yellow brick road. It doesn't matter how many witches or flying monkeys or apple-throwing trees come at you, you stay on the yellow brick road. Amen to that one? And that's what belief is, that you're totally committed and you do not walk away, you do not veer off. So he reclassifies them as sinners and tells them, unless you believe in me, unless you put your faith in me, you will die in your sins. Do you think that went over well? I think it went over like a lead balloon, man. I think they're so angry with him now. They're like, how dare you say this, this to us? Now, look at verse 23. He makes a statement. You are from below and I am from above. Very consistent with what he's done before. Because in John 3, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, doesn't he say that as, as Moses was lifted up, in, in the wilderness, I'm sorry, he says to Nicodemus, he says, let me back up in that. He says, unless you're born again, and the idea is born from above, right? Unless you're born from above, that's the idea. So here we find it again, that Jesus is from above and they are from below. So he says to them, and he says here, unless you're born from above, you're going to die in your sins. Does that truth scare anyone anymore? Not much anymore, does it? Because we live in a society that's veered so far away from God and eliminated God. Now, this is why in verse 21, unless you're born from above, verse 21, notice what he says here. He says, I, second at very end, he goes, where I am going, you cannot come. Did he say you shall not come or you cannot come? You cannot come. See, you cannot make it into eternity unless you're born from above unless you are from above. So he's connecting all these ideas together to bring forth this truth, reclassifying them as sinners, and they're not happy about it. Now, verse 25, the argument starts. Here it goes. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. When they say to Jesus, who are you, Jesus? Jesus basically says to them, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I have been telling you over and over again. Question, what has he been telling them over and over again who he is? I am. Over and over again, I am the light of the world. I am the bread that came down from heaven. We just saw an I am statement there. We saw an I am statement back in chapter 7. He's I am, I am, I am. And remember, I am means the self-existent one. We in the theological circles call that the tetragrammaton. I've said that many times to you. It simply means the four letters. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, is what it means. I'm the self-existent one. And of course, in verse uh, 27, do they have any clue what he's talking about? No. They do not know what he, who he is, what he's talking about. Once again, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Correct? Now, look at this, verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up, the Son of Man. Question, is Son of Man a big title? Say yes. It's a messianic title because it's a quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. This is the Messiah. This is a God title. So when he says Son of Man, this is a huge statement right there. But notice, when you lift up 
the Son of Man. Remember the words lift up. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Question, is He italicized? Yes or no? Yes. So in other words, it's not there originally. So it's, you'll know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Question, when he says, lift up, Son of Man, what do you think he's referring to when he says, lift up? When you lift up the Son of Man. Not when he lifts himself up, when you lift him up. When he's crucified, that's right. When you lift up the Son of Man. Now, how many of you, because um, <clears throat> he's talking, how many of you raised kids? How many of you told them one time to do something and they did it the first time? <laughs> you tell them and you tell them and you tell them, right? And you tell them and you tell them and you tell them and you tell them again and they just don't respond. They don't respond and they act like they're not, they don't even speak English, right? It's like you speak another language. So Jesus tells them, think about this with a map. He tells them, you're going to lift me up. Has Jesus said those words before? Yes. Nicodemus again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Ah. So here we find Jesus teaching the same lesson again and again. And because you and I have the scriptures, we don't know that he probably was when he's traveling around, he's probably teaching the same lessons multiple times throughout the day in various locations as he travels. So he's saying these things again and again and again and again and again and again. Nicodemus will end up understanding and getting it. The Pharisees, do they get it? No, they don't. He's, they're like our children. You'll tell them again and again, and they don't get it. Try being a pastor with announcements on the screen and somebody giving announcements and then somebody says, you never announced that. Oh, really? Just for three weeks? That's all we did, right? And we put it all over social media, did it live here, everything else. You never said that. Are you kidding me? We've said it so many times. But yeah, that's the way it is in church circles. You just got to get used to that. Now, look at verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, I got a question for you. How secure would you and I be if we believe verse 29? He sent me, he's with me. He sent me, he's with me. How secure would we be if we truly believe that? We'd be very secure wherever we went. We'd never have any insecurities. Now, here we go. Let's drill down a little further. Point two, and that's this. Jesus gives us the traits of a genuine disciple. What does a real disciple look like is the real question. Okay, verse 30, 32. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Okay, now, I got three bullet points in there for you to show you what a, what a genuine disciple is all about. And then I'm going to segue it to another spot to show you something else. First, it begins with belief in him, right? 
Because in verse 30, many were believing in him, correct? Question, what does the word belief mean? What's the idea of it again? Does it mean, well, I believe there's a God? Or is it much more than that? It's much more than that. Now, the second bullet point is this. We begin and continue in God's word. So, we believe in him, and then we start in and continue in God's word. In other words, we could say it like this. We order our lives around the word of God, correct? The word of God is my guide. It's my light. If I'm ever in a debate with the word of God, guess who's right and guess who's wrong? I'm wrong, Bible right, correct? So you continue. It's what you're doing now. You're continuing in the word of God. You're not intermittent in your reading or study of the Word of God. You're continuous in this Word of God. That's a real disciple right there. And then the third bullet point in your notes is this. We begin to know the truth, and it makes us free. Then you now you're continuing the Word of God, and you're knowing the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. Now, the word know, K-N-O-W, it's not the idea of, well, you observe the Word. No, you're understanding the Word. You're getting into this word and you're understanding what God is saying. And when it says makes free, it's the idea of you are released from a debt. In other words, we are released from the death, the debt and penalty of our sins, correct? Do you remember the verse in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Remember that verse? The word condemnation within that context there means that you and I will not be eternally condemned. We are, we are free. There's no eternal condemnation for us. We're going to live in eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what that idea is there. Now, so the genuine disciple, if you really want to know what it means, it means you believe in Jesus. Belief, you jump on the yellow brick road. Amen? You get into the Word of God. Correct? You stay in the Word of God. Correct? And then that Word of God, as you understand and stay in the Word of God, it begins to transform you and you become a free person, correct? It's freeing you as you move along in your life. Now, let me share another set of verses that when somebody asks me, what, is, what does a disciple look like? Let me show you where I would take them so you can see it. Now, we'll come back here, but go to Mark chapter 3. I think I have it in your notes there for you. Mark chapter 3. I think this is a great, brief description of what a genuine disciple really is and really does, besides what we just read. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay. Now look at verse 13, 14, 15 of Mark 3. It says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. He appointed... And he appointed 12. Now, these are the disciples, right? We're going to look at genuine disciple, right? These are the 12 disciples. Now, watch this. That they would be with him. That he could send them out to preach. Verse 15. And to have authority to cast out the demons. You notice three things there? There's the disciple. I'm with him. I'm sent out by him. In other words, I'm a minister. Yeah, Jim, you are. No, we all are. Every, every true disciple is a minister. Every one of us. So I'm with him. I'm sent out to minister for him. And in my being sent out, I'm 
battling with the demonic. Am I not? That's what I'm doing. Now, don't get Hollywood sensationalized and battling the demonic. Take it down to earth. If you teach Sunday school or you assist in Sunday school, some of those kids are coming from broken homes and maybe not loved, correct? And as you love them and teach them, are you not battling the demonic? Yes, you are. Someone comes to the door, and you're a greeter or an usher, and you smile. Good to see you. But they're so lonely in life, and you strike up conversations with them. Are you not battling the demonic? Yes, you are. You're always battling the demonic. You see, when you put these together that you are with them, you are sent out to minister, and you are battling the demonic. You put it all together, that's what dynamic Christianity looks like. It's pretty simple, isn't it? And when you live that on a daily basis, it's like this. The moment you wake up and open your eyes, the devil says, oh no, they're awake. And that's what it should be. Oh no, they're awake. And now they're this person who's with Jesus, sent out to minister, and they're ready to battle the demonic. That's a disciple right there. Now, way different than a believer, right? That's why I like to use the word follower of Christ. That denotes action in Jesus. Now, back to John chapter 8. Let's move on. Verse 33. They answered him. This is a great thing. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Okay, question. They say they've never been enslaved to anyone. Question, are they enslaved to anybody right now? Who? The Romans. Have they been enslaved to any other empires before that? Yeah, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians. How can they possibly say they've never been enslaved to anyone? When they're enslaved at the very moment, they're saying that very, they're contesting it. Now, back to the question. When he says, how is it you say we will, you will become free? Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 34, 5, and 6. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That's a loaded question, one right there, right? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son, of, so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Let me give it a shot because it's always been kind of a tough one for me to kind of grasp for that whole thing about uh, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. Let me, let me go. First he says, when they go, how is it that you say we'll become free? Well, you're slaves to sin, he says. And I've got to set you free from, from sin. But then this whole idea of the slave doesn't remain in the house forever, what in the world is he talking about but the son does remain in the house forever? Let me, give it, let me try to give him my best shot. You kind of have to parallel the visuals for them in that time frame. Because they knew slavery, they saw it every day, right? There were millions and millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. I think it had estimates between three to six million slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. So it was massive, it was widespread. In that day, if many times, not all the time, but many times, when a slave got old, broke down, ready to, they just cast him out. They were done with them because they were utensils. They were resources. He has taken that. He's saying, that's what sin does. You're a slave to sin. And sin will take you. And sin will use you up. And then it will throw you away. But if you're a follower of Christ, you believe in him, 
You remain in the house forever as a son and a daughter of God. You're part of the house. You're in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And so I think that's what he's telling them right there. Now, let me tell you my interest, my little side note on this whole idea right here. <clears throat> a sinner of which I, yes, I was a sinner. I'm still a sinner. But I'm talking about before I came to Christ, my thinking was, if I give my life to Christ, I lose all my freedom. Anyone remember that thinking? Yes. If I give my life to Christ, I lose, all, I lose all my freedom. But in reality, when you give your life to Christ, you become free from all the sin. Where before, you, I, I thought I was going to lose my freedom. No, I became free when I came to Christ. But you can't think that way till you come to Christ and you realize, oh no, I was a slave and now I'm free. And now I see that. Now, number three in your notes, and that's this. Jesus implies that their father is the devil, and they attack Jesus with being illegitimate. So Jesus implies your dad is the devil, and they attack him. They say, you're illegitimate. So here it comes. Now the conversation begins to amp up right now. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Remember this, an issue of father. Now he's going to tell them about your father. Now, they're going to contest. They say, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. And verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. Here's what they say. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now what's going on there? Okay. They try to trap him with the adulterous woman, correct? Could they? No, they couldn't. So, so they couldn't get him on that adultery issue. What other adultery, supposed adultery issue, do they try to get him on? Mary's mother. She got pregnant before she was married. Small town. People know the gossip. And so because they can't get him there, they're saying to him, you know, we have Abraham as our father. When they say, we were not born of fornication, they're saying to him, you're illegitimate, and we know it, and everyone knows it. That's how they're trying to attack him, and they're going at him that way. <clears throat> now, they're saying that God is their father. <clears throat> you don't know if God is, they're saying, God is our father, but you don't know who your dad is. So they're taking issue with Jesus. Now watch this. <clears throat> Jesus is now, since they bring up fathers, Jesus is going to tell them who their dad really is. He shouldn't have provoked Jesus, because here it comes. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Can you stop right there? Isn't that a big statement? If God truly is our father, don't we love people? Right? I think it's a big statement. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? 
It is because you cannot hear my word. And here comes verse 44. You are of your father the devil. Guys, is everybody standing around listening to this? Oh, yeah. You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Notice what he is. He's a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's a loaded statement right there. Now, let me break down what Jesus just said. He says, their father is the devil. Now, why does he make that? He gives you a logical reason as you read the whole chapter. Because the devil was a murderer from the beginning, right? He has already told them, what do they, what do they want to do to him? They want to murder him. So he's saying, by that right there, logically, that's your father. He's a murderer. You want to murder me. And so we know who your father is. Makes sense, right? He says also, not only is the devil a murderer, he's also a... A liar. And what have they just done? They lied about his mother. They lied about his legitimacy. And so now he's putting it all together and he's pinning it back on them. Now, <clears throat> the devil does operate within lies and he wants to keep people as far away from the scriptures as possible. Does he not? That's right. Now, he says he was a murderer from the beginning. So let's mark right here. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's look at Genesis 3 and let's see that very well known passage right there. Eve, the serpent, and let's see how he is a murderer and he's a liar from the beginning. Because he's equating them to the serpent is what he is. And later on when Jesus says, um, the, on that famous Matthew 23, what do you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites? He calls them a generation of vipers, snakes, just like the serpent. So he's equating them to these things right there. Now watch in Genesis, let me read verses 1 through 7, then I'll go back and make statements on it, okay? Look at this. From the beginning, this is the, this is the beginning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said of the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, real quick, this has nothing to do with what I'm going to tell you in a second. But notice, how many people think God is a God of, No, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't, huh? But notice here, God is a God of, You can have all this, yes, you can. That's the way God is. But there's one thing you can't have. So he's a God of, yes, you can, before he's a God of, no, you can't have that one thing. He's the opposite of what people try to make him out to be. Now, look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And by the way, Adam is standing right there, isn't he? He's standing right there, and he does nothing about it. And he's the one who knew. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Okay, 
<clears throat> he's a liar from the beginning. He's a murderer from the beginning. This is what happens right here. Okay. <clears throat> the first thing we find in here, does the serpent question God's word? Yeah. He says, has God said? And that's very common, right? God's word is always questioned in these days. And then the serpent calls God a liar. Didn't he say, you surely shall not die? Well, that's like saying God's a liar. This, you can't trust this word. God's a liar. And then he says, you know, Eve, God is holding out on you. Because he says, see, God knows that if you eat that, you're going to be a God knowing good and evil. God's holding out on you, Eve. He's holding out on you, Eve. And then he promises her this spiritual upward spiral of enlightenment. You know, you'll be this. But when she does eat, she spirals downward, not upward. And now, instead of enlightenment, she receives embarrassment, and she's got to cover up with fig leaves, correct? So now you see he's a liar, and, by, and she's separated from God. There's the murder from the beginning. Now, here's the question. Murder, like, how? What is the, is the serpent, Satan's means? How did he do this to her? He kept her from what? He questioned what? God's word. That's how he always operates. Once he gets you to question God's word, it leads us into slavery, does it not? And it'll keep us away from God's word. And I'm sure after that happened, the devil just slapped. So a couple weeks ago, I'm watching, I'm reading this article. It's a Christian article about this thing. And it was interesting. I don't remember the title, but, but what was going to happen, they showed this video, and I think it was in Seattle, and I'm pretty sure it was Seattle. And it was recent stuff. And they showed these people. And there was a Bible on the floor. And they're kicking it back and forth. And they're playing soccer with it. And they're doing that as a protest to the Supreme Court reversing Roe versus Wade. And, and I'm watching that. You know, you're like, oh my gosh. They're kicking a Bible like it's, like it's just nothing. And, and I'm thinking, God, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. This is God's holy word. But you see where people get to where Satan takes them and lies to them as if this is nothing, as if it doesn't mean anything. But when we veer from this, we go into slavery, slavery to sin and everywhere else, separated from God. That's why Satan never, never wants a Christian to read the word or study the word because it brings freedom to a Christian's life. The, the devil was a murderer, a liar from the beginning. He will always use lies to trap us. Look, you've heard me say it before. Every one of us in this room, including me, still believes some lies. We all do. And as we read the word of God, we get more and more light and the lies are revealed and we can apply the truth and walk in the truth of God's word. Correct? If we understand that, it will always motivate us to keep reading, to keep studying, to keep getting the truth of God's word. Amen. Now, verse 45, back to John 8. Look at verse 45. It says this. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. So he's already called them sons of the devil. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God, hears the words of God. For this reason, 
You do not hear them because you are not of God. Verse 48. Now watch the response. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Well, that's your classy comeback, right? After all this logic and everything, you're a Samaritan and have a demon. Now, why do they say those two specific things? Now, now I want you to think about it, because it's very logical in the way they're immaturely coming back at Jesus. They call him a Samaritan. In other words, you're not Jewish, and you're you're demon-possessed. Okay. Didn't Jesus just tell them they're not true children of God or Abraham? That's what he said. You're not really children of Abraham or God. Didn't Jesus just say that you are children of the devil? So since he said those two things to them, guess what they come back with? Well, you're a Samaritan. You're not a child of an Israelite, and you have a demon. You're a son of the devil. It's like they're saying to Jesus after he did that, I know you are, but what am I? That's like what they're doing. That's their best comeback right there. It's like they're little children coming back at him. And it's very logical the way they're coming back at him, but it makes no sense. Now, look at verse 49. It says, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Whoa. They really latch on to that one. The Jews said to him, verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Now we, you, now we know you're demon-possessed now because you said that. Abraham died. Now they go back to Abraham who they say is their father. Abraham died because Jesus said he who believes in him will never taste death. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Verse 53. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. In other words, guys, never glorify, never glorify yourself. Let others praise you. Smart move. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, there's a great line, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him. And keep his word. Your father, here here it comes. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. He says, your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. How long ago did Abraham live from this moment? 1900 years ago. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How in the world did Abraham see the day of Jesus? How is that possible when it's 1,900 years earlier? And if Jesus says it's true, it's true, right? Well, let's see. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. To your right, Hebrews 11, and we're going to see how he saw Jesus way beforehand. Because Jesus is, remember, he's the I am. He's eternal. He's the word. Now, look at verse 13. And this is all within the context of Abraham from verses 8 to 12. It's all about Abraham. And then it capitalizes on it and finalizes and says this. Verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. 
but having, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They all died in what? In what? In faith. But they saw it, right? So when he says, Abraham saw my day, how did Abraham see his day? By what? In what? What? By what? In faith. That's right. That's how he saw it. He believed in the Messiah to come. He knew there was a Messiah to come. Now, come back to John chapter 8. Now, the Pharisees, after they hear that Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it. Now, in their minds, they're not paying attention to anything except they've got their calculators out. And they're doing the math now. Because they're knowing like, what? How can you say this? Abraham lived in 1900 B.C. How can you possibly say this? So they're doing the math. And here's what they say in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Are you kidding me? Abraham died, you know how many years ago, how many centuries ago he died? And you've seen Abraham? Come, you're not even 50. Now we know you're insane. Now, watch number four, last point. Here it comes. Jesus declares that he is God. Here it comes. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. Come on. You're out of your mind. And Jesus says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He calls himself the I am. The four letters, tetragrammatron, the YHWH, the self-existent one. Now, before I go into what that actually means and what they know that means, let's look at verse 59, and then I'm going to take you somewhere. Look at 59, so I can finish off the chapter and take you somewhere. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why do they want to stone him? What did he declare? He's God. That's blasphemy. They understood it exactly, right? They knew exactly what he's saying. Okay, but let's take it now to where he's taking it from. And I've waited till this moment with all the I am statements to show you where he's taking it from. The well-known passage. You've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. Go to Exodus chapter 3. And we're not going to come back. We're good. We're going to finish off tonight. Look at Exodus chapter 3. It's Moses. Moses now is a shepherd for 40 years. And one night he's out there shepherding the flock and he sees a fire on the hillside in a bush is burning. Now he has seen this many times in his life more than likely because of lightning strikes catching bushes on fire. So we, we know that. But this very night when he sees that bush burning, he says, the bush is burning, but it's not burning up. I gotta go check this out. Now, Moses has been on the run for 40 years since he killed the Egyptian. Moses believed he was a deliverer 40 years ago, but he fled after he killed the Egyptian. He's found out Pharaoh wants to kill him. And now he's a shepherd, and he believes this is all there is, and this is what he's going to be now. So I'm going to be a shepherd. Now, he goes up to the burning bush, and look at verse 11. Watch this. And God has just told him, I'm going to send you back to Egypt 
to, let, to bring my people out. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Stop right there. Has Moses forgotten who he is? You better believe he has. He once knew he was the deliverer, but now he says, Who am I? And he forgot who he is. That I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Question, was he eager 40 years ago to deliver the Israelites? 40 years later, is he eager to deliver the Israelites? The longer you put off the call of God, serving God, volunteering for God, the longer you put it off, you're never going to serve him. You'll be less likely. You will talk yourself out of it the older you get and the busier you get. He is, he is not wanting to follow God's command to serve God. now. He's not wanting to do it. Verse 12. And he said, this is God speaking back at him, certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. In other words, you'll bring him back here and you'll worship here. That's a sign that you're going to know. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm, I, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Question. Pretty logical, right? They're going to ask me, well, Who sent you? The, the God of your father. Well, what's his name? I wonder, what, what should I say your name is? And here's verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay. So now, when Jesus stands there and tells the Pharisees, when they say, You're not even 50 years old, how could you know Abraham? And he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. He's saying this, and this is exactly what he's saying. Remember the person that Moses talked to in the bush around 1,479 years ago? That's what he's telling these guys. Remember that guy? The eternal, self-existent, the I am, God, Yahweh. Remember that guy? Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And so now we find out why the Pharisees just go nuts. And they want to stone him. And they want to kill him. Because he just declared that he is God in the flesh, Yahweh. But Jesus secretly gets away. Why? Because it's not his time yet. Because Jesus is in control of it all. Amen? We'll stop there tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you, you are the great I am. They understood it. They understood exactly what you were saying. And that's why they want to kill you. Father, thank you for your word. I just pray we continue to be hungry for this thing, for your, for your truth, God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.